You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 183 is Neil Gust. He is known as the longtime collaborator of the late Elliot Smith. They co-fronted a band called Heat Miser in Portland, Oregon, starting in 1993 through two albums and an EP. You're right now hearing Rest My Head Against the Wall from their last album, the major label debut, 1996's Mike City Sons. Now, even before this time, Elliot Smith was becoming famous as a solo artist doing acoustic stuff for films and at some point got too busy. And so Neil then started another band called Number Two and put out two albums with them in 1999 and 2002 before taking a long break until just this year where Number 2 has reformed and put out a new album, First Love. We'll discuss You Might Be Right off of that album and we'll look back to Critical Mass from Number 2's first album, 1999's No Memory and then back to Why Did I Decide to Stay by Heat Miser from Cop and Speeder, a 1994 album. You can hear more by looking up number two on Bandcamp. That is N-O dot two. And you can learn more about this podcast at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Make sure you subscribe directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed on the podcast app of your choice. If you become a supporter of this podcast at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, you can get access to my notes with lyrics and arrangement information for all the songs. And whether or not you want to do that, I would appreciate you leaving a rating and review on Apple Music or wherever you listen to this. So I will play it a little bit of Rest My Head Against the Wall by Heat Miser from their last album, Mike City Sons 1996, to orient folks. Let's get the chronology straight as the co-front man of Elliot Smith was it all always a partnership of equals or was it somebody started songwriting before the other person Elliot wrote more than I did Mm -hmm. a lot more than I did but when it came time to putting records out it was always something that we did together and that it was our vision of what a band should be and that was very equal and I was reading that even before Heat Miser 1991, you were in Swimming Jesus. Was that like during the college years? That was the first thing that Elliot and I did together. When I showed up at Hampshire College, he was one of the very first people I met. And we just sort of instantly started, realized that we had the same interests in recording, playing music and Elvis Costello. So we were playing together and recording like the first week of college. Someone had a four track, they'd rented it and we went crazy with it. We got to use it. We used it over a weekend and we were playing with other people. And I don't know what happened to those tapes, but there's one or two still out there. And from that, what we decided to do was just to do some covers and play in this like little bridge cafe that was on campus. And Elliot came up with the name Swimming Jesus, which he thought was really funny because he's not walking on water, he's swimming, I guess. A few years later, you got Heat Miser, you got three albums and one EP signed to a major label for the last one. But this Elliot Smith blow up in fame is not after that. It seems pretty early on, like it's 1994 or something while the band is like doing your second album. This parallel thing was happening. We put out the first Heat Miser record, Dead Air. Mm-hmm. And immediately make Yellow Number 5, which is our EP. In this time, we kind of took a lot of shit, actually, from what it felt like people in the Pacific Northwest that were kind of fed up with rock bands. 
because there were so many. It was the 1993, 94. Yeah, I thought that would be the perfect moment. That's like Nirvana's Nevermind and stuff like that was... Sure. I mean, it depends on what you think is the perfect moment. Like in Portland, it really was the perfect moment. In the Pacific Northwest, it was just a little bit after, you know, at least to be considered cool. At least this is what it felt like. Our own reaction to our record was sort of strange because we did it and we were really excited about it. And then it came out and it, it sold great. I think it's probably the best selling one that we had on Frontier. But people just felt like they were dismissing us and we didn't really get it. And it felt like it was because we were yelling and Elliot didn't like going on tour and playing loud rock music if he didn't have his heart into it and if people weren't into it. So he responded by just going back to his four track like we used to do in college and recorded a bunch of songs that way. And then he just gave that tape to Christopher at Cavity Search Records. Christopher's like, this is great. Let's put it out. So that was right after Dead Air. Okay. Then we made Cop and Speeder. And right after Cop and Speeder, he made his self-titled second sure. record. And that came out on Kill Rockstars. And once he did that, it established a very different audience. And he also started really connecting with people in a way that seemed kind of quick and easy, as opposed to sort of the battles we were fighting in a rock band. Sure. Then we made Mike City Sons. Then he made Either Or. Then I started Number Two and made No Memory. All right. So two albums of that. And then you retired. Did the second one not do as well? Did you get dropped from the label? What was going on? No, it didn't. <laughs> it, uh, he Miser never had like the whole infrastructure of like a touring band. It was kind of by the seat of our pants. We had a manager and she was booking tours for us, but that's an overwhelming job. And then it was starting to sort of capsize right when we had major label money. So it was never really sure, like, how is this going to stabilize? And then it didn't. And so we kind of abandoned it and I went on to number two, but I never had like a booking agent or anyone to help. You're saying even with number two, you did not have it. With number two, right. So by the time we made a second record, I was spending all my money making records and trying to do this stuff and working full time. And I didn't have it in me to try and do it again. Like I spent all my time trying to get a band off the ground that I couldn't. So I just stopped. All right. And then now this year we're back. So give us a brief where we are with this new record, First Love. And You Might Be Right is the song you picked off that. I missed it desperately. It took a long time to come back and get it right. But we feel like we did. And here it is.
interesting mix in this song. You got three distinct sections, each of which could be its own thing. I don't know. It, it seems like the other songs we're talking about today don't have a chorus that is as catchy as this. It sort of goes from the pre-chorus that what did you hide in the, and then it could just go back to the verse. You know, that's what some of the songs that you've done. But this one actually gets down with, is this why you picked this? This has the most catchy chord. What was it about this song in particular? I love it that you say it's the most catchy one because people that I talk to have really different opinions about these songs. And so... Well, it's the one I listened to six times. So I don't... (laughs) Maybe that's why it's the most catchy. I picked it because I love it. And I think the band sounds great in it. And it was kind of our declaration of intent. It was the one we finished first. And so we put it out as a single just to see like what would happen at every stage in number two coming back. We didn't know if it was going to work. And so we got together, we rehearsed, it went great. So we got together, made a single, put it out. It went great. So let's make an album. And that's what we did. Let's break it down. So the intro riff, I feel like it's very brave to do a riff, even though you get off of it very quickly, but that is the standard blues. It gets off that very fast. Is that where the song started? Where did the song start in terms of putting it together? Like, was that the part that you thought of first or was it the chorus or? No, it's sort of the melodic version of the bar chord, what you're talking about, sort of blues thing with your pinky. So that's essentially the baseline that I'm playing with bar chords, but that's not the thing that came first. What came first was the melodic version of that chord progression that comes after it. Okay. So the pre-chorus, which is the most, are you a fan of Bob Mould? I had him on the show. Of course. Yes. That this sounds the most like sugar in his pop period. a really nice chord progression to break up if you have that blues thing to start with. I mean, you get again to then take it. Oh, we're changing keys already. We're going somewhere else. And then to have that nice chromatic da, 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 like, which is not self-consciously dorky. I'm, I'm not trying to demean it in any way. The way that it feels to me is that I love rock music. Uh-huh. So I don't care if it traffics in cliches as long as it makes me feel thrilled, you know? Yeah. So I don't care if it is full of things I've heard before, as long as it's for real. Putting that song together, we just tried to follow what is thrilling. Mm -hmm. And generally, it's energy and melody and some surprises and some things that are familiar enough that it makes you feel like you can take it for a walk and you kind of know where it's going to go. But then there are surprises around the corner. Yeah. In terms of matching the mood with the lyrics, I mean, the chorus is very direct, of course. This time, this time, tomorrow, you know, that's the center of the thrills right there. Uh But, you know, it's kind of a depressing song. You know, I'm reacting to being cheated or something. And you've got some, you know, this is the worst. No, you know, you know, but it's still a pretty fun romp, especially during that pre-chorus part, the really interesting Muldish thing. Are you consciously, I guess when I was reading about that, you guys like the big star technique, I don't know who, who to attribute it to, but like of having happy music with miserable lyrics. 
I wouldn't say that like I set out to do that, but in writing songs, always trying to figure out like what sounds right. In putting it together, you're just kind of doing things as you're playing it. And this time, this time, tomorrow came out. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens tomorrow? And then da 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 like that rhythm felt right. And those were the words that landed right. And then if it's going to be all over tomorrow and you might be right, what's that really about? At that point, it's trying to say something honest mm-hmm. instead of just making up something that fits that doesn't mean anything to anybody. So if it ends up being a bummer, that's the cost of trying to be honest in the moment of writing that song. So I found it interesting. The pre-chorus happens three times and the first and third are the same lyrics. What are you hiding? What are you throwing away? What are you fighting? But then, yeah, changing that up for the second one. Is that just so you could sort of cram more story in there that that was not? Yeah, I mean, because you don't want to get boring. So if you're on a drive or you're sitting there with your headphones or you're going for a walk and you're listening to music, like you want it to carry you, right? Mm -hmm. And if you can sort of predict what's going to happen, if we give it all away, then it's no fun. Like you don't want to hear it again. So all of these songs have an attempt to be generous to ourselves as listeners. Ourselves, I mean the band. We're writing songs for ourselves. And like, what do we want? When it comes around to that, Because it is like three parts that just repeat. How do we approach these parts in ways that they have more of an emotional landscape? And the only way to do that is to try to play them a little bit differently and approach them differently in the mix, in the way that we phrase the chords and obviously in the words. And by changing that up the second time, you get to put that again and again and again, actually follow the chords up that one time which I should say, I take back the word dorky. It's unashamedly poppy. I'm only bringing this up because you, you know, when you were starting, it sounds like maybe the first Heat Miser album, the unrecognizable way that Elliot is singing, certainly from his later stuff. I don't know. It has a certain, we're on stage playing rock and roll. Whereas by this point, your voice is, in fact, all the number two stuff, and even the later Heat Miser albums, both of your voices, they're there, but we're not doing backflips for your amusement, that you're allowed to be a little lighter. Was there an evolution in your your sort of stage approach that often as the lead singer, especially in a loud guitar-based band, you have to bellow over things, right? That is, in 1991, when we were starting, if you're not a treble, as neither of you were, a, a tenor with a white snake sort of voice, it's hard to even cut through. So it sounded like on Dead Air that, you know, at least how I'm interpreting the difference in the radical difference in like that Elliot Smith is unrecognizable. You sound a little more consistent. You were sort of always a little lighter voiced. But was there a change in sort of approach to the lead vocals as time went on? In Heatmiser? In your own style. Like, did you, was there any detectable, a different in how you viewed being a front man and how much space you have to take up? And clearly you weren't being, you know, the white snake guy shooting over the heads of everybody to start with. It had to be mixed loud and, you know. I guess just to still talk about, you might be right. It was a high energy song that required a high energy vocal. And if I was going to be high energy and had to sing out, then I had to figure out what it was that I could sing out honestly, not just yell for the purpose 
of yelling. Like if I'm playing a show and I'm sick of the song, but the emotion is still honest, then I can do it. Then I can actually sing it rather than some bullshit rock and roll cliche that I came up with that I thought sounded like rock music. That is not something I could keep singing. Mm -hmm. You had a horse at the end of every show. The Bob Mould comparison is, is another good one that by that time of this era, he was actually just singing back and singing as opposed to the Husker Du, where they're both just used to bad PAs. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of reasons why you blow your voice out live, especially if you're playing shows where you, you can't hear yourself. Or if like you're not trained and you don't know how to set it all up so that you can hear yourself or sing a certain way. All of it, it's like a huge learning process. And, it, and coming back to it after 20 years was the only thing I knew is that if I was going to sing loud rock songs, they had to be as emotionally honest as I could make them so that it was not acting because I'm not an actor. <laughs> so the same thing happened in Heat Miser where Elliot clearly felt like an actor with some of those songs, but I kind of pushed back on him because he got sick of doing that, but he was also pushing back against a lot of things inside the band that had grown uncomfortable for him. And just playing by himself made things much easier. So we all kind of wanted to chill out. And that's why those records like Cop and Speeder is very different than Dead Air and Mike City Sons, very different than Cop and Speeder. But we were all clearly like Elliot was evolving so fast and so good. He was always good. But those records are great. I love his solo records. And you could see that they were connecting with people. And so we bought into this idea that you could connect with people by chilling out a little bit and also, he expanded the emotional spectrum of what songs could be in a rock band for us in the most immediate sense. He'd bring the songs and we'd play them and they sounded awesome. So I'm kind of going way off your question. The questions are just an excuse to get you talking. The vocal sound itself. Are you double tracking? I normally double track because I like it. It sounds very 70s and kind of glam to me. I think if you're doing like heaps of vibrato or something, Elvis Costello double tracked would sound weird, but you know, your vocal style is straight ahead enough. Right. I'm also not that great of a singer. So <laughs> if you double track it, it helps. You can set it in the mix better, you know, like it turns it into a shape that's easier to place in the picture, the sonic picture. It just makes things easier to hear. So how much thought went into the guitar tone then? to not overshadow that it's it's got to be distorted it's a big rock song but it's not i guess is the guitar also double tracked um not always sometimes i love playing guitar and i love the sound of guitars and it was fun just try lots of different things so honestly with guitar stuff it was just about having fun it always is even in on all the heat miser records on all the number 2 records we just tried to have fun well, it sits nicely in the mix, and it's obviously very different than the sound of the early 90s, where you're lucky if you could hear the vocal. The vocal would sit back in the mix more, whereas this, you could listen to the whole thing as older people that we are. You could listen to the whole thing at a fairly low volume if you want, or you could crank it up, and it sounds good either way. You can still hear the vocal. 
I usually feel like the intended listening volume of a band is determined by whether you can just hear the voice as if you were talking to somebody. And so if the voice is very low, like in a punk band, that's because it's supposed to be so blisteringly loud <laughs> that you can still hear it. But the guitar is taking, you know, and the drums are, are shaking the house here. Any thought on coming back to this? Did you use a new person for mixing and mastering or did you do a lot of that yourself? How involved were you? It was mixed by Gary Jarman and Tony Lash and Tony played in Heatmiser. So obviously Tony is extremely familiar to me and Gary, this was the first time that we worked together on a full record. He recorded and mixed by himself. You might be right. And it sounded great. Recorded it in his basement studio and he mixed it there as well. Sounded fantastic. So always it was just about, does it have like a visceral, is it to me and to like the 14 year old boy inside me, is it thrilling? It's great that you were referring to our, you might be right as a unabashedly pop song. Cause to me, it's like, this is so not anything anyone would consider pop now. You know, it's, sure. it's really <laughs> it's old power, fashioned. Power pop, let's say it's, that. Yeah, it's old fashioned and it doesn't fucking care. Like, that's what was fun about it is that we just were trying to have fun and make it as honestly thrilling for ourselves as possible. Well, let's get the second song out there and talk a little more about the way that you would arrange things for the band. So Critical Mass, the opening track from number two's first record, No Memory, 1999. Do you want to say a few words about it before we hear it? This was one of the first songs I wrote after Mike City Sons. And it was one of the first songs that number two ever did. Down with the crash, it 
So really interesting, distinctive guitar riff right at the beginning. The first thing you hear was that the origin of the song was coming up with that. Yeah. Written with the fingers. Was it written for this album or was this riff floating around? So it was unclear if Heat Miser was over or not. And I've just kept working on songs. And Elliot showed up and was into recording some stuff. And we set up our home studio and he played drums on the demo of that and sang on it. And I think he played bass on it too. He just kind of threw it together. He, he was like, that's a cool riff. And it went from there. As soon as you get encouragement for something, you know, it feels like, okay, I can, good, we can move forward. So that's how it went. That song is about walking around Portland, which a lot of these songs are. So it's not at all about being uncomfortable, being a rock star or anything like that. You look out of place under under fluorescent. I guess you wouldn't be in fluorescent lights if you're on stage. They're not fluorescent. They're uh, something else. Halogen. Not at all. So again, some really nice pop gestures here with the clapping. This is like the previous song in that the part that ends with critical mass could have been a pre-chorus. Like it could have gone. And now we need to really release the tension. Instead, it just continues to build the tension and kind of throw you off balance. And now we're back to the verse. There's kind of no relief for this. I guess that's the feeling of walking around that there is no (laughs) particular relief. Okay. This song is old. So I know it's about something very specific. And it went through a lot of development from the demo with Elliot and then playing it with Paul and Gilly. It became what it is for the record. So its structure seems pretty typical rock songs, just verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus. (laughs) Well, and it seems like you you sort of like the call and response format. So here it's the call is by the guitar and then you're answering it. In the first song, it was both in the verses, it was lyrics answering lyrics. So that you're da, 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 da. You know, it's as if you could have had a second vocalist come in and do, you know, the high part or whatever, but it's just you answering yourself. I guess it's a nice technique to just, you know keep things moving forward here just to think ahead. So the, the third song we're going to talk about is Why Did I Decide? There's more variation in the phrasing, right? It's not like this one is guitar riff. Now I'm singing a thing, guitar riff, as opposed to the next one where once that's established, let's have the words come in sometimes before that. I guess it's a longer riff, you know, in the next song rather than, dun, 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 you know, three, three beats, I guess is all you have to interfere with. I don't think of it like the structure that way. So it's hard to talk about. Is it partly that you're playing the guitar? So of course, now I'm doing the noodly thing and now I'm going to stop doing the noodly thing while I sing. that that is a more natural thing than keep doing the noodly thing or whatever. Well, for critical mass, there was the riff and I didn't feel like I could sing over that, but I could sing over chords that came after it. And the chords are the things that stitch that gets you to the riff. So the singing happens and the riff happens and singing happens, the riff happens. And then for me, the meat of that, the funnest part of that song is the chorus because the melody kind of tumbles over where the chords start to repeat. So the melody 
is sort of offset. If you picture it and there's four chords, the melody starts in the middle of those four chords and finishes after the four chords are repeating. I had it in mind that it was the same, but of course it's not the same riff before, but it's the same rhythm. They all one, two, three, four. Okay, so it's after the four. Right, so in the verse it comes in a little earlier. So it's not the same exact phrasing. It still has the call response thing, but you're changing it up. Oh, I see what you're saying. So So, okay, I just don't think of it like that. So (laughs) you're right. It does do that. And these things that you're hearing are probably unconscious habits of mine that get repeated. (laughs) Let's stop for some sponsor talk. All passionate music fans have those artists and albums we feel deserve more attention. We can't work out why the rest of the world doesn't see it. And surely one of the best things about music is singing the praises of those albums you love with people that are as yet unfamiliar. Another, of course, is debating ones that aren't. Well, how about a podcast that does these and more? The Unsung Podcast platforms under-acknowledged masterpieces. Sparks fly as hosts, guests, and fans debate the merits of each week's selection. Regulars Mark and Chris are joined by a variety of experts and enthusiasts from across the music world, including, yes, actual academics. Weekly shows take deep dives into both the obscure artists that fame have overlooked, as well as the outlier albums by famous artists that fans have overlooked. Hear familiar names reappraised and also discover a world of new sounds. Going beyond just the songs themselves, the gang also dig into some of the biggest issues, including feature-length journeys through everything from the sinister ideologies of black metal to the wacky adventures of eccentric 70s soul pioneers. You can even hear captivating interviews with all sorts of musical figures, exploring the artist's honest feelings about their own back catalogs, as well as hearing the hidden gems that influence their own musical development. With five years and more than 200 shows in their locker, Unsung Podcast has built up a discography of worthy music that deserves to be spoken of in the same hallowed tones as so many white albums, black albums, or blue albums. Join in the discussion and expand your collection at the same time. Find Unsung Podcast's extensive catalog of music and debate today wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit unsungpod.net. I also want to talk to you about the Nebbia by Moen Quattro Showerhead. I've told you before about their background, these high-tech folks from Tesla, NASA, and Apple that are devoted to addressing the water shortage by creating the world's best high-pressure water-saving shower. And that is all great. The shower by saving water will pay for itself. But today I want to address the experience. I have two showers available in my house. They're equally convenient for me to use. I have no specific routine. And yet I gravitate toward the upstairs one with my Nebbia by Moen Quattro. Number one, I got the hand shower version of it. There's a rain shower version as well, but being able to pull the actual shower head off of its base, wash your feet and other places, it's something you should look into. Second, the Quattro has four modes. Sometimes I'm in the mood for one of the powerful high-pressure spray modes, but more often it's the inimitable popular Nebbia Spa Spray that creates a misty, drenching feeling. I just shove my face right in the thing. So I get to feel like a a glutton that the desert peoples, the Fremen from Dune, would scoff at. But actually, I'm using about half the water that I would use with the normal shower. And I have to remind you that this was super easy to install. 
You just get a little wrench, you unscrew it, you screw it back in. It's about like changing a light bulb, you know, with a wrench. So there's no chance that you're going to need a plumber or wreck your tile or anything like that. The Nebbia by Moen Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebbia.com. Nebbia gave us a special discount just for our community. Go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M and use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebbia products. Again, that's Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer and save 10% with the code N-E-M. Let's talk about the rest of the arrangement. So the backing vocals in both of these, they're pretty fun, especially in, in, and you might be right, where you choose to throw in the harmony. Is that just sort of a band decision? That's Gilly's decision. Like she had free reign to do whatever she wanted. So she just worked something out. Usually you just try a bunch of things and see what sticks, you know? And luckily we were working with our producer, Joanna Bolmi, who's really good at feeling when it's right and feeling when it's not. She's another set of really trustworthy ears and can help us edit the different things that we try. I mean, was this worked up live so that, you know, Gilly had one part, whereas on the recording, okay, so this was just... Put together for the record. No, this is like the second time we played in 20 years. I brought this song in and we were going to record it. And here it is, make up something to do. So she had demos to work with and then time in practice. But then when it came time to doing it, recording it, a lot of it was kind of figured out then. It sounds like you're kind of a hands-off arranger in terms of where the drum licks go etc it opens with a, a few and then it has this much more hyperactive drum riff that's super cool than anything else in the song yeah that's elliot he demoed that he's not a drummer so he just did something that he thought was cool and thought it sounded cool and then paul made it his own okay so actually it might help in some ways Paul, i mean the way paul plays it is cooler than what elliot did but it is an interesting way for the drums to come in that <laughs> Elliot suggested with the demo. Yeah, because it could just be kuchak, boom. You know, you could just... <laughs> right. But instead, this jittery, jittery thing. Yeah, any thoughts about... There's no guitar solos to speak of. Are you ideologically opposed to those? Or... Not at all. I love guitar solos. It just happens to be, we just happen to have picked songs that. No, I just, I'm not that great at them. And we don't play live enough that I have enough time to sort of develop them with people responding and seeing like what is working. On the new record, there's a few bits that, that are sort of like solos, but they're also just kind of like riffs. I don't know. There are lots of songs that I love that just kind of go on and there's long soloing and I think it's really cool. Not opposed to it at all. Yeah, these songs are, okay, you might be right, it's actually 328, but the last note I have is at 306, the guitar intro again, whereas Critical Mass is exactly 307 I have down. They're both as compact as they can be. That They both have a space where stuff kind of goes away. In Critical Mass, it's you know, the drums go away again, so they can come back in with that same riff. In the first song, it's go to drums and bass to play that a little before. That is the substitute for we're not going to have a, a break into a big guitar solo. Instead, we're going to break it down. We're going to make it quieter so that that's the thing that then we can come back and finish the song. That comes from loving songs by a lot of 
glam rock is sort of, and I mean, 70s glam rock, not 80s. Sure. T-Rex. Yeah. T-Rex and Bowie and Sweet were all things that I really loved as a child. So I don't know why there isn't more. I wish, I wish there were more guitar solos and I wish they were amazing. <laughs> there was guitar solos in the second number two record where we were trying to be a lot more expansive. Well, in this one, it wraps up by adding this, I had to listen a couple of times, like a one-handed electric piano. Right? Kind of doubling the riff so that then we can finish the riff and the end of the song. Do you recall what? Oh, yeah. So that's just the piano. That was just the old trick of keep the melody going with a different instrument. Yeah, layered over so we could just yeah wrap this up. That both of them end without a lot of to do. Right? We just kind of holding the last note as opposed to like a trash can ending or some you know some other. I guess it has not been as excessive energetically throughout with the giant guitar solo or anything to warrant a, a critical mass. How do you end them live? Do you just kind of is that the same way? Do you just hit the note and? It ends just like it does on the record live. <laughs> These decisions are sort of made intuitively and as quickly as possible. <laughs> you know, as soon as it sounds, it feels right, then we can move on. So I don't know why we didn't do it differently. Well, it's nice to have endings like that. I don't know. I've, I've had some records where I have like three different songs that are kind of the finale and I just have to put them all at the end, you know, that have some excessive instrumental thing or you know some big ending or and if you have more songs that end like this then well then they can just be placed <laughs> elsewhere in the record and they will flow nicely they're not oh now i have to recover <laughs> you know you can just go to the next song there is a prince song on sign of the times that's on the second album and i can't remember what it's called but it changes it goes to halftime and he just goes to the ride and it just kind of cruises Mm-hmm. And he's just soloing. And it's one of my favorite things on that record. It's just amazing. And it, I love records that have songs that break whatever molds like you're talking about and just kind of loosen up as long as it sounds good. Well, let's get the third <laughs> song out there. Why did I decide to stay from the middle record by Heat Miser, Cop and Speeder, 1994? Um, this sounds sort of the most of its time. Not that I'm saying you were trying to imitate. This is before Marcy's Playground, which is the, the song that made me think of the Sex and Candy song. But it has the Nirvana, you know, in that it's sort of a low stated vocal. And then it gets, a, you know, not the loud soft thing, but it gets going. <laughs> Any thoughts of where you were at at this point, 1994? That particular song, I think when I had to come up with songs for you to talk about, one of the questions was what was one of the Heatmiser songs of mine that I would want to talk about. And I guess this one was a turning point for me because it's better, <laughs> I think, than what had come before it. Better, like emotionally and better crafted, I think, which isn't to say that I don't like those rock songs that came before. But it was a turning point for me in Heatmiser where I felt like, oh, they should start to sound more crafted like this. They should be more honest like this. Come, come 
start tomorrow morning Did you forget or were your kisses my final warning? Pop enough, your smile easy What was I supposed to say? It's the ground and it dies easy I was comparing this to critical mass in that it has a guitar thing Mm -hmm. that then you answer, but the guitar thing is a lot longer. It's this just, you know, we can go on like a full two measures sometimes, or sometimes it's just a couple beats because now we're actually in the chorus. You thought we were still doing that. It's a really cool manic effect. (laughs) It's the chord that I think there's an Elvis Costello song called I want you. Oh yeah, that's one of my favorites of his. Yeah, and it's it starts off with a C sharp minor, damn, and that's the chord. So I was playing that chord, and I'd gotten a tremolo pedal, and I was getting into the sound of that chord with the tremolo pedal, and the song walked out from there. It was a long time ago. I don't remember writing it, but we can be a co listener with me then. <laughs> That's sort of how I feel like, you know, we don't understand what we do. We just, we just write stuff and. <laughs> no, I don't. No, but I mean, like, yes, it is like, okay, so there's a guitar thing and then there's a guitar chord pattern that I'm singing over and then it goes back to like an instrumental thing. I guess I was into the way these things sound and then like let them sound as they do and then come in after it, I guess, is how I was thinking when I was putting it together. And because it's more relaxed in tempo, there's more room to mess around with the rhythms, right? That I was saying that, you know, you've got... Yeah, it's not distorted either. It's played through like a Fender, not a Marshall. And it is way laid back compared to anything on Dead Air. But you still get to hit the, you know, hits the ground and dies easy, you know, have the energetic part. It's not, you know, a huge contrast, but it it has a nice slow build yeah i you know i like it when there is a build or going someplace <laughs> well and then we get to this bridge
the lyrics that I had downloaded somewhere didn't even have the lyrics. You know, the is it jealous because I'm lonely? Just says because I'm lonely. Oh, just says because I'm lonely. It sounded like you said something before that, but it's at that point, you know, it is swamped there with, you know, giant guitars <laughs> rolling over that. I wrote bridge that that's the bridge and then bridge two. <laughs> It's sort of a another bridge. That's a verse. Okay, okay. So it's just the verse, the late verse that we've changed the the textures louder. And I think you might be. I, I don't remember if you and more desperate. I mean, I guess by being so light and mumbly in the very beginning of the song, it gives you a lot more a room to grow to grow more desperate as the song goes on, as opposed to right. So the song is about. Walking home after waking up with somebody who had broken up with a while before and we slept together again. And it was like getting my heart broken all over again the next morning. So that's what the song's about. Why did I decide to stay? Walking home that morning and just being like, fuck, I can't believe I did this to myself. So it starts just as a walk. And mulling over, why did I do this again? And then the emotion becomes overwhelming. That's why the song follows that structure. But it's also a totally normal rock song structure. (laughs) So we got two walking around songs, but this second one has a definite plot of what you're thinking about. I think that's why I was filling in the gaps. I mean, so just to look back to Critical Mass for a second, the reason I thought it was had to be about the music industry or something was because this chorus, they all want to put you at ease. They all want to pay you in cash. They're happy when you're down on your knees. You're finally at the critical mass. There's nothing about walking around specifically in that. It's more what you're thinking around. Walk down Sandy Stars. Right. So it starts off, I walk down Sandy Stars. And Sandy Boulevard was this particular street in Portland where it was super sketchy. Hmm. It was really sketchy. And you could cruise like married men in their cars and get picked up if you were gay. So I would go and I would cruise, like almost never met anybody. But this was a time in my life when I was very lonely and I was trying to connect with other people, but I was doing it in this awkward way of wearing headphones at night, walking on the street. Like how are you supposed to connect with anybody? I didn't know that. I mean, that's kind of the problem with being, if you're in the closet for a long time, you don't have any practice dating people or navigating how to start, how to meet people or date in a normal way. So I was just trying to figure it out by myself by walking down the street. And so that song, Critical Mass, is about walking along Sandy, feeling this excitement to get downtown where I was going to go to gay bars and hopefully talk to people and meet them. So I'm walking down Sandy and the cars are passing me and I'm realizing that this is kind of hopeless. Like the kind of person that I'm going to meet on Sandy Boulevard isn't the person. It's not a long-term relationship prospect. Really (laughs) me. So that's what it's about. Critical mass is like when I'm finally not scared anymore. Okay. 
it's perfectly fine to not know that I this is what I meant because I was also kind of trying to hide it at the same time. You know? I was wondering if at this time that even though you're doing you know, very honest lyrics, but they right. don't have to be obvious what it means. Well, I'm not <laughs> right. I didn't want to give a report of why I was so miserable all the time, but actually that's essentially what I was doing. Well, there's a song after this called here's why I'm so miserable all the time. So you know, right. So turning back to why did I decide? So this is a, again, a pretty miserable song. And, and yeah. unlike the first song that we talked about does not hide it in a nice little pop format. It's got the grunge rock thing going. I don't know. Is this a live favorite of yours in terms of be able to really pull that out? Is it, we made a video of it and it was the first single off that record and the video is great. It's got our friend Mark Swanson dancing in it. He was, he's, he's an artist and, but he was also a club kid in his late teenage years in his early twenties. And he was a great dancer and we filmed him around Portland, just dancing up against the sky in slow motion, we didn't, the directors of the video did. And it just had this sort of beautiful, melancholy motion that fit the spirit of the song. And I still think it's just lovely. So that's why I picked the song to talk to you about it. Any thoughts about the difference in, in terms of arranging this for the two guitars, bass and drums? You know, how this differed in this situation from from number two was this, there was there a lot more haggling oh. in heat miser over exactly when the second guitar is going to come in and how, the, how, the, how everything's going to connect as opposed to number two, where it sounds like it's more, here's the song play along. <laughs> yeah. We kind of had the ideas. We talk about them and try them and there wasn't any fighting about it or like push and pull about what to do. It was more like everybody kind of had their, their role and everybody that I've been in a band with has been very respectful of songs. So they try and do things, you know, in the song that is fun for them, and but it also is in the spirit of the song. So I, I don't know. If you just work with great musicians, they kind of do that work. But still having the two of you, it seemed it was more trading off or singing in unison or something, as opposed to you mentioned Sweet or somebody like that. You know, we're going to, you know, have a Simon and Garfunkel element to everything that it's got to have the stacked harmonies because that's the sound. Like, it seems like, no, you might only think if you weren't listening carefully that there was only one singer in the band because there's only one person basically at a time. Right. I mean, I didn't know how Sweet put their songs together. Uh Well, there's like four of them that's singing, you know, four lead singers. And they're they're all belting like, you know, it's basically Queen. I didn't even know. I was very ignorant about all this stuff as we were making it. We all were like, we just kind of figured it out doing it. <laughs> I feel like I'm disappointing you with these answers. Okay? <laughs> no, no, this is great. I'm just, I'm looking at the clock. Let's introduce the last song. Another one from the new album. I'm on a mission. One of the singles here. Give us an introduction to, to send us off here. So this is the first song. And it's another one of these songs about walking and trying to connect. All the songs are very similar. <laughs> well, I enjoyed the experience. There's, there's quite a lot of musical variation. I felt like, you know, not like we're going to pull out the calliope for this one, but like the, 
in terms of they don't blend together. The new album it flows very well. I'm not nicely. apologizing for it. Frankly, like, you know, one of my favorite bands is ACDC, and they have a very slim repertoire of subject matter. This is our sound. It's more like, what can I be honest about and perform and sing in a way that's not an act that I can actually try my hardest doing? I also feel like you can repeat yourself as an artist as much as you want, and it still can have value. As long as you are really trying to examine something from all its facets. And to me, being a single gay man in a world where you have to figure it out by yourself, which is what it felt like. That's what it felt like for me. I can write about that for the rest of my life because there's a lot of emotion there. Well, thanks so much for your time here. This was, this was a great treat sitting thank you very much a manageable number of albums not 30 definitely some very memorable stuff great all right here it is i'm on a mission
Thanks so much to Neil. He was a real trooper. He did this right after coming back from a funeral. So our thoughts are with him. Again, you can find out more about Number 2 and their new album and their old albums by looking up the band on Bandcamp. And of course, the Heat Miser albums are all on the various streaming services and definitely worth your time, whether you were already a fan of Elliot Smith or not. Of course, since Elliot Smith has passed away, this is the closest I got to interviewing him. So I feel like I need to apologize to Neil for spending so much time on that old relationship, which I'm sure he gets asked about all the time. But I guess that was only maybe a third of the interview. So it is what it is. I hope you enjoyed it. Neil seemed to have a good time. For my next interview, I'm turning back to instrumental music with a fellow named Mike Baguetta, a great guitarist who is currently doing a project with Mike Watt, who I've had on the show before, and legendary drummer Jim Keltner from Traveling Wilburys and many other things. I also just talked to Bruce Thomas, the bass player for Elvis Costello and the Attractions. He's a fascinating guy. He's written books, and we really get into the mechanics of coming up with bass parts. All of my interviews can be found at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, which provides you links to subscribe directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed. I also have a Spotify playlist with all of the songs that are covered in every episode in order. If you follow that, you'll even see the songs as I add them for consideration for new episodes. You'll know who I'm talking to in advance. And while you're at Spotify, check out my Mark Lint songs playlist, which has every song of mine that is up on that service, solo albums, new people, The Matrix. I've added a number of albums from my back catalog to that recently, and more will be coming up in the following weeks. So please follow me there. I'd also invite you to Facebook friend me or follow the Mark Lint music and Nakedly Examined Music pages on Facebook. I've been putting up links to individual old songs with some commentary. So I was off on a vacation to Maine for about a week and did not do any mixing or recording. I did write a few parts of new songs, kicked around some ideas while climbing a mountain, hiking in the woods, experiencing nature. It is, of course, a great way to get inspired, especially with the wonderful fall colors, if you're in a part of the world where that's happening. So however you do it, keep being inspired. Keep on music in. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide-open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its opera ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com.